Welcome to Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Emma Adjumang, Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle, and Darius McDermott, Managing Director of Chelsea Financial Services and Rating Service Fund Calibre. The start of a new year means the end of a tax year is on the horizon, so you may be thinking about using up annual savings allowances such as individual savings accounts, ISAs, or pensions. But just piling money into random investments to use up your allowance is not likely to bring about what you hope to achieve with your investments, so before committing money to any investments, you should review your portfolio. But this isn't necessarily a straightforward task. However, Emma's written a guide on how to do this. So Emma, how should you kick off the process? It sounds like a really obvious point, but the first thing you should absolutely do is remind yourself of your investment goals, i.e. what are you actually trying to achieve and what's the time frame you're planning to invest for? Okay, um, so like, why is it important to remember your goals? The main reason is that it helps you to focus on the long-term picture rather than getting caught up in short-term noise that you know obviously surrounds markets. But if you're clear about what you're trying to achieve and investing for a 10-year horizon, for example, you can actually just sort of sit back and not be so worried about the day-to-day concerns and issues that are you know affecting markets. Why, other than using up your tax allowances, might you want to revisit your goals? I suppose another key reason would be if there's been a change in your personal circumstances, such as losing your job or going through a divorce or getting a promotion. These are all things that might make you think twice about what you're trying to achieve and how long you can achieve it in. Okay, so you work out what your goal is. What do you do next? Well, after reminding yourself of your goals, the next thing is to consider how effectively your current portfolio is working for you. And one way to do this is to compare your portfolio against private investor benchmarks. Um, And these are something that financial advisors often use to measure the performance of their client portfolios. But you can find them on data providers such as Trustnet. Um, Another way is to just, you know, compare your portfolio against your own personal targets but really making sure that you understand how well your portfolio is currently working can help you figure out what you need to change. Okay um, and what are some of the other things you might consider? Um, it's also important to reassess your risk appetite each time you review your portfolio because as we say um, circumstances could have changed and also consider the portfolio's current asset allocation and geographic spread. Okay um, Darius what key things do you think investors should look at when reviewing their portfolios? Well, Emma certainly mentioned the, the majority of the, the starting points. Um, and when we talk about sort of reassessing, I think you need to look for sort of drift in a portfolio. So if, for instance, you had an allocation of 10% in emerging markets and emerging markets performs very strongly, as you reassess your portfolio the year after, it might have gone up to 14 or 15% of your portfolio, which is fine as long as you appreciate it and agree that you want that increased allocation. Otherwise, you probably should consider rebalancing back. And, you know, when you do a rebalancing of something that's outperformed, you are actually taking a profit. And nobody got shot for taking a profit, as they say. Okay. Um, So what kind of mistakes should you try to avoid when reviewing your portfolio? Yeah, again, I think Emma sort of alluded to some of the the main things, which is, you know, markets have a lot of short-term noise. And... um, Making changes to funds because they've had a disappointing period of short-term performance, I think, is often a mistake uh, that that private investors make. Um, Chasing the herd, adding to uh, last year's winners. Um, um, Last year's winners can often be this year's winners, but actually over time they've proven actually the things that do poorly the year before actually is uh, the things that do the well the following year. 
Um, so not following the crowd. And then, you know, reviewing your portfolio and keeping an eye on it, but not overdoing so. Um, you know, if you worry about it on a, a weekly, monthly basis, you'll probably make some poor decisions. And one thing which we see regularly with, with client portfolios is being over-diversified. Now, there's no set number of funds or positions you should have dependent on the amount of money. I mean, you could argue a 5,000 portfolio is every bit as valuable to that investor as a 500,000 pound portfolio. But we do see private investors actually over-diversifying sometimes. And then, you know, if you've got 30 or 40 funds on a 20 or 30,000 portfolio, frankly, you've probably just got an expensive global tracker. Okay. Now, you said um, not to over-review your portfolio. So how often should you do it? And is the end of a tax year the best time or the only time to do it? Uh, I suppose the run-up in the tax year is a good time to do it because if you are going to make further allocations to ISAs or pensions, you want to at least understand where your, what position your portfolio is in. Um, for instance, the US stock market has been a real strong performer now over the last five to ten years. Do you have the sort of allocation you want? So a review of that rather than just looking at last year's fingers and go, oh, US was very strong last year, I'll put more in the US. So, yeah, a review of the portfolio, I would say annually or half annually it is probably enough. But as we've run into 2018, there are some regulatory changes coming from something called MIFID 2, which means that most providers are going to have to send you quarterly statements. So that, I would suggest, is a prompt, but I, wouldn't, I personally wouldn't want to review my portfolio every quarter because markets do go up and down and sideways for reasons that some of us will never be able to predict or understand. Okay. Now, I think as you and Emma have both made clear, reviewing your portfolio isn't simple and could take some time. Mm. I mean, do you really need to do it? Well, I, I mean, so the first thing is if you allocate to a fund, let's pick on the UK, it's our home market, and the fund manager has very good historical performance – Things that we know is all fund managers have periods of bad performance, and that can be actually for quite a lot of reasons. It may be the style of their fund. Some managers are out-and-out growth managers. Others are value managers. And over the majority of the last seven or eight years, it's been very much a growth market. Now, that doesn't mean that the people who run money with a value style are bad. It just means they've had the wind in their face rather than the wind behind them. So just going, well, that manager's underperformed because he's a, a value manager, in itself probably wouldn't be the right decision to make because, as I said, we've no idea whether it's going to be a value or a growth market. We can make predictions based on GDP and, and, and interest rates and inflation and that type of thing. But what then in that instance you can do is you could actually check that value manager against a value indice, and as long as he's outperforming the value indice, you know he's doing – he or her is doing her, their job right – um, whether or not it's the right fund is a separate thing because of market conditions, but it means at least they're they're doing, you know, they're managing well to the style of fund they have. Okay, so the annual spring clean is not something you should skip. Thank you, Darius. Yeah. Some really helpful suggestions, and you can read all of Emma's six steps for better investment returns in this week's magazine and the website. Now, choosing a fund involves a lot of research, so to try and make the process easier, some investment platforms produce lists of their favourite funds. But even when you turn to these, there's still hundreds of suggestions, so Emma's trolled through a number of investment platforms to see which funds were most suggested. Emma, which platforms and lists did you include in your research? So I looked at five platforms, Best Invest, Charles Stanley Direct, Fidelity Personal Investing, Hargreaves Lansdowne and the Share Centre. 
Okay, so some of the uh, main players in the DIY investor space. So which fund did they recommend the most? The only fund to actually be recommended by all five platforms was Stuart Investors Asia Pacific Leaders, which we also count among the IC Top 100 funds. Um, this fund invests in the shares of large and medium-sized companies that are based or have significant operations in the Asia-Pacific region, and that includes Australia and New Zealand, but excludes Japan. And the fund also has a um, focus on investing in quality, sustainable companies with a strong valuation discipline. Okay, so popular fund, has it been uh, making top returns then? Well, actually, over the past five years, the fund has broadly performed in line with regional indices such as MSCI, Asia Pacific, excluding Japan Index. Um, and over the short term, it's underperformed its benchmark and sector average. And that's coincided with the period of time that the fund's been under new management. Since 2016, the fund's been managed by David Gates and Sashi Reddy. And they took over from long-standing manager Angus Tullock when he retired um, after 30 years at Stewart Investors. OK, so if the fund's been underperforming, why do brokers recommend it? Um, it's a good question, but I suppose the reason that they would argue is that, um, as Darius was just saying, funds can go through short-term underperformance, and really it's it's the one- and, and three-year figures that um, is still quite short-term, especially for Asian equities. Um, Asian equities should be held for the long-term, at least five years. And the other reason that managers and brokers might still want to include the fund is the fund has its quality-focused style, and that means that it could it could lag in rising markets. And over the last few years, we've known Asian equities have done very well. Okay. Uh, now, which other funds were highly recommended by these broker platforms? Another fund was LF Woodford Equity Income, which is run by Neil Woodford. Um, needs new introduction. Exactly. But, uh, <laughs> yep. Um, and this was recommended by four out of five platforms. Um, Mr. Woodford's had a really good long-term record of investing in UK equities income sector over three decades, notably at Investco Perpetual. And he left there a few years ago to launch his own fund house, setting up this new fund. Um, so yes, that was one of the funds that was also highly recommended. Okay, and has this fund been making stellar returns like uh, the funds at Invesco Perpetual? Um, no, so far he hasn't. The fund has underperformed the FTSE All Share Index and Investment Association UK Equity Income Sector um, over one and three years. Okay, so what were some of the reasons why brokers maintained it on the buy lists? Um, many brokers still rate Mr. Woodford's excellent, you know, long-term performance over the course of his career, and this is still a relatively, you know, short period of poor performance. And they point out that in the past he's had these periods of poor performance, um, but they think overall his, you know, his uh, stock picking ability and his defensive style means that the fund will outperform over the long term. Okay, Darius, um, fund caliber, um, which Emma didn't cover in this research, but has a, a list of elite funds, continues to count LF Woodford equity income um, on this list, despite the underperformance. Why does Fund Calibre continue to like this fund? Yeah, well, um, fund Calibre actually rates both the funds we've just discussed, both the uh, First State Asia Pursuit. Asia Pacific Leaders Fund and the Neil Woodford Fund. Um, first thing to just quickly highlight is that Fund Calibre is different from those platforms because it is not a transactional platform. It is a source of true independent information. You know, there is no bias in the research we do or, or anything like, like that. Uh, I'm not saying there's bias in other people's lists, but you know, when you're a transactional platform, you want to sell popular funds. 
So if we just have a quick look, because I think they're both really good examples and both for slightly different reasons. Now, Emma's highlighted the change of manager, but what is absolutely critical on the first state fund, or the Stuart Investors, I should say, sorry, is that the process is totally unchanged. David Gate had been a part of that team for well over 10 years, had been associated on their, on their sister funds for well over 10 years. But Emma also made a couple of very key observations, is that they do have a valuation check. And the thing that has really driven markets in Asia in the last two years is the Chinese tech stocks. And they are, yes, quality businesses would tick that, but they're fast outgrowing, um, you know, what what Stuart investors would deem to be sensible valuations. And again, then there's the sustainability part. So Asia has been very much driven by in the really now the five-year performance will be driven by are you overweight those Chinese tech stocks or not? It's quite a binary bet. Um, but if you look at the longer track record of that style, and I'm now talking over 5, 10, 15 years, there's substantial outperformance. And as Emma pointed out, they're pretty much in line with the benchmark over five years whilst fighting against the tide. So I think that actually very much warrants continued support. The other thing that Fund Calibre does, which again applies to both these managers, is we start with a quantitative um, ratings aid which is called alpha quest it looks at long-term alpha generation removes beta i.e market movements to try and make a, a starting point as to whether managers are indeed skillful or or lucky then like all good fund researchers we go and meet those managers and we meet with them regularly um we're seeing uh, neil woodford in february and it'll probably be quite a tough meeting because as you say we has had a difficult period of performance but the a quantitative system, AlphaQuest, still shows that over a 10-year track record that the fund more than continues to pass um, our screen. And the same, Neil is not an out-and-out growth manager, which again has been sort of a headwind to his style. And then, as very well publicised, uh, he had a couple of difficult stock issues, which all managers have over a career. He just had a couple of sort of car crashes in a short period of time. Um, and we will be asking him about those and the liquidity in those stocks and some of the other factors that you know, a, a managers have. You know, Neil has concentrated positions in some of these stocks, so yeah. hence he has to have high conviction. Which two particular stocks? Well, Provident Financial was the standout one. Um, I think in intraday it was down sort of over 70%. Uh, Neil backed the stock, bought a bit more, uh, has recovered some of that loss. Um, and some of his previous winners, things like Purple Bricks, which are up many hundreds of times since he first invested in them, you know, when you get some of these small, liquid, higher growth stocks, if they have any form of profit warning or slowdown, they can uh, the share price can deteriorate quite quickly. Um, markets, you know, do punish things that are look like darling stocks, uh, maybe are rated very highly, and then they have a, any form of bad news, and they can often be off ten, twenty, thirty percent in a day. So it's not atypical but yeah neil had a couple of those last year was he astrazeneca astrazeneca uh, i don't think was probably one of the ones that caused huge problem but i don't think the astrazeneca is probably his biggest position mm. but he didn't do a lot yeah. as i say you know it's not a growth stock you know people look at pharmaceuticals in respect of their future drugs and astrazeneca had a really high profile pipeline drug forget the name of it mm. but it went in in its early trials had disappointed yeah. and that did cause uh, a big uh, sell-off in astrazeneca on that day as well okay now obviously managers have short term issues so how long should you give a fund to turn around its performance so because we have this sort of the long-term quant at the heart of our process we are reasonably patient. We think if things are behaving as we mightn't expect after 18 months, 
uh, to three years. But we also actually monitor the short-term alpha. So if the long-term number is much higher and the short-term number is actually below our, our threshold, that certainly rings bells with us. And as I say, we're, 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 we, we see all the managers on our list quite regularly. We're seeing Neil... Um, in February and you know we will go through some of these issues and see if we're comfortable and you know if the quant part of our process deteriorated that that Neil's score was below that then at our annual committee then that would probably lose its rating. Okay now what, what criteria does a fund have to meet to newly get an elite rating by fund calibre? Yeah well, as I say one of the, the the differentiators between us is we have this quant which has to have a minimum score and it takes weekly observations. It's it's not a black box rocket science, but it's quite clever and it tries to just really differentiate between luck and skill. We think that gives us a, a nice starting point, nothing more than that. As you say, some value managers which have had difficult market conditions still score quite heavily because they're actually beating the value indices that they're supposed to do so. Um, and then we meet the managers. Uh, it, it's simple, you know, one thing, a, a quant model telling you something, but... We're quite simple. We like to understand how fund managers do what they do. Is it repeatable? And if they are growth managers, a growth benchmark is a second, you know, something we would keep a, a, a watch on it. But we have lots of specialist funds, whether they be biotech or tech, and clearly they would have different indices to look at. Um, but, you know, finding high-profile common funds, uh, and again, Emma has highlighted a couple that, that do sit regularly on people's buy lists, is one thing, but Fund Calibre has managed to find a good list, I think, of funds that people will be will be less well-known. Um, there's a fund called Living Bridge Microcap, which is a small-cap fund. Uh, it's now coming up to eight years. It's a fifth in the sector over five years. It's got a very good long-term track record, sort of a bit of a hidden gem. Um, then there are things with slightly you know, less well-known brands to UK retail buyers, things like T. Rowe Price, European Smaller Companies, Unicorn Smaller Companies, or Gamstar Continental Europe. Europe is one sector where there are some standout European equity fund managers. Um, and, you know, Niall Gallagher at Gamstar is, uh, I think, probably a less well-known star fund manager. But if you have a look at the fund, the, the fund's performance over the medium and long term, you'll see that, uh, you know, our quant highlighted this and then we go and meet them and understand what it is they look for. Okay. Now, as you are assessing a fund... Um, what features or attributes would make you refrain from giving it an elite rating? So the first problem, obviously, would be it not scoring well enough on our quant. But if we, you know, I've been doing fund research now, I'm afraid to say, for probably in excess of 20 years. Um, things that are just a bit too complicated, you know, that, that I just can't understand. We probably don't rate things that, 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 that are, are just a bit too clever. doesn't mean they're not good, but if they're out of our competence, then, you know, what chance does the retail public have? Um, and if we expect a manager to do well in certain circumstances, so we ask fund managers, you know, yep, you're a UK fund manager, clearly your main benchmark is going to either be the FTSE 100 or the FTSE all share, but we try to ascertain their style. And if a manager is not doing well. So 2016, particularly the second half, seen a real snap from that quality growth back to value. And all those value managers that have been sitting languishing in the dark for, you know, the previous four or five years, if they didn't perform well in that six month period, that would ring an alarm bell for us. So yeah, we're constantly reviewing these things, but that actually is our day job. Okay. And and what would lead you to strip a fund of its elite rating? Well, we would, the next thing we'd do, we would probably get on the phone with them and arrange either either a meeting or a conference call. And 
if there were one or two stock specific issues you know there even if you talk about value as it has been over say the last three to five years there's miners there's financials there's supermarkets you know in 2016 supermarkets were a very strong area as were miners now some value managers just think mining sector companies are too difficult to make valuations on because the the main thing that happens is what is the copper price or what is the the tin and the lead price and they don't think they can accurately forecast that miners also tend to have quite bad balance sheets and one area that value fund managers are quite keen on is not just buying a cheap stock they're buying a cheap stock that's not going to have difficulties with their bankers you look at carillion at the moment it's a very topical stock carillion's got some long-term contracts with with with, with a triple a rated government as as the payer yet it's currently got big debt problems with its banks and the banks might foreclose so you know that is an absolute value stock but it's a value stock with a, a number of red flags and some managers just won't touch heavily debted companies that doesn't mean you look at 2009 anything that didn't go bust in the financial crisis was probably up two and three hundred percent from that low of March 2009 for the rest of 2009, the house builders were very typical in that said, You know, they, they got to the, we're not quite going bust, and then they, they, they re-rate, and they re-rate substantially. And that type of investment is for deep value recovery type managers who think they can see, you know, they've got the time to spend working through balance sheets, contracts, and, and then they add a value as to whether they think that sector is going to turn for whatever reason and then i don't think anybody buying house builders in 2009 knew that there was going to be a help to buy scheme which has then seen a substantial further re-rating of that sector but what would lead you to strip a fund of its elite rating? if a fund was performing against our expectations or if the quant uh was um deteriorating substantially and we couldn't understand you know we phone the managers they give us uh, an answer and if their answer was wishy-washy was not in line with what we might have expected then you know we would probably give it a very short period of time to recover and if it didn't then we would remove the rating okay well any examples of funds you've um stripped the rating on recently um so fund caliber has its annual investment committee uh meeting in in the summertime uh, so we're always reviewing funds but decisions are made uh at that stage um funds which have uh, lost ratings in the last couple of years uh, have been some Asian funds from Aberdeen. We do understand that they have had a difficult period, but they're also running an awful lot of money from multiple offices. And we became actually, it's quite a technical thing, but a little bit concerned about, you know, the interaction within the team across that sort of four, you know, Singapore office, a Hong Kong office, a London office. And we met one of the managers and we just weren't convinced. So we suspended that rating. Okay. Now, you think that fund calibre's quite different to some of the other broker buyers. So, I mean, do providers have to pay anything to pee on your list? We do have marketing partnerships with some of the funds, um, but it's very much rating first, marketing partnership second. Um, around 25% of the funds that are rated do not pay us anything because we have to rate the funds that we think are the best. And a, a, an obvious example of that would be Somerset Emerging Market Dividend. Uh, it's a fund that scored so highly on our quant. Um, it was a fund that Chelsea, uh, our sort of my other firm, had, had supported. Um, and we began conversations with them on two fronts, on, on commercial and, and, and research. And they made it quite clear that they don't pay for any ratings with anybody. Um, but we went and seen the fund manager and awarded the rating anyway. So that was so yes, there is people do pay a marketing license should they wish to. 
to tell their fund buyers, whether it be external IFAs or the general public, that this fund is rated, but there's certainly no requirement whatsoever to do. And because we have the quant at the heart of our system, it has to pass the quant first. So we have been approached by a number of people in the last four years since we launched saying, will you rate our fund? The first thing we do is look at the quant. And they will have already indicated they'd be more than happy to pay for the licence. But if it doesn't cut the, cut the mustard, then it doesn't go in. Okay. Now, how should investors use a best buy list such as Fund Calibre's Elite uh, ratings to help them construct their portfolios? Well, again, we have around 150 funds rated out of around 3,000 that are readily available. Um, We are looking to rate the best funds. But, you know, as we've said a number of times now in the last, there are periods of certain funds that are very style driven. And if their market if the market's a growth market when you're a value fund, there's nothing you can do. But what we do on Fund Calibre is try to make it quite clear to investors that this is a style of fund. We try to use language that investors can understand. So an often industry uh, subject on, on fixed income is the duration. And what duration means to the man in the street, I haven't got a clue. What it means to me is how sensitive is a corporate bond portfolio to a rise in interest rates. So we talk about if rates go up, this has a sensitivity to that and try to put it in language that people can understand. But no buy list or no no fund manager will have all stocks in their portfolio working at the same time. And Fund Calibre and any other fund research business will, will rate funds that are good, understanding what they're supposed to do. And it just will be that, you know, styles in markets won't be supportive of that over, over now sometimes even prolonged periods, as Emma's highlighted with the Stuart Investors Asia Pacific. I very very comfortable having a rating on that fund yet it hasn't beaten its benchmark over five years it's about level actually i know that's really quite a good return given some of the things it won't do like the chinese tech stocks which have been dominating asian markets for the best part of two years by a long way okay now um what does a best buy list not do um well as i say i think fun is a bit different because it is not transactional it is uh, has a quant at the heart of it, which you know keeps us honest, um, I think companies. You know, the one thing which we learned, and I'm, I'm you know I'm very happy to talk about this, is in around the 2000 dot com bubble crash, lots of DIY self directed investors were massively overweight in that tech due to the sort of hysteria and mania that was in that sector, and a lot of money to be made over short periods of time. But as a business, what you found was as they then fell 80%, our clients' assets fell 80%, our firm's assets, and hence our fees fell 80%. So we very much started using fund research to try and put best-of-breed funds in the shop window, and we get access to fund managers uh, in a way that that, that our clients and clients who use other platforms cannot. So there is a, a bit of trust, but I suppose one has to be absolutely transparent is all of those people in that, that research, ourselves included, will pick funds that don't do well. But hopefully in aggregate, we pick funds that do do well. And, you know, Chelsea Financial Services buy list has been in action since 2001. We measure it against appropriate benchmarks and the whole of it, including all the bad funds for the periods they've been on, you know, to do outperform and in some other sectors by quite a long way. US is quite difficult historically. Um, Japan, quite difficult because it can be very stylistic. Value can outperform for long periods of time and then growth. Um, having the right funds on your buy list at the right time, it, it, it's a skill.
Um, but actually, things like European equities, UK smaller companies, the outperformance on from our bias has been many, many tens of percents over a 10-year period. Okay. Emma, what other things should investors consider before plunging their money into a fund because they saw it on a buy list? I think that investors do need to take best buy list with a pinch of salt, especially as last year the regulator warned that you know some of them could be at risk of conflicts of interest. So its research found that the percentage of affiliated funds, that's funds where the platform providers and manager and or distributor of the funds, um, the percentage of, of affiliated funds was 3.8% larger on platform buy lists than non-affiliated funds. And also, after making it onto the selection, affiliated funds were a lot less likely to be kicked off best buy lists than non-affiliated ones. So that's something that investors do need to be aware of. Nevertheless, um, you know, if you are going to be looking at them for ideas, you should also remember that um, they're not personal recommendations or advice. And before you add any fund, you really need to make sure that it fits in with your overall portfolio um, timescale and risk. Okay, um, Joe, so um, any of Fund Calibre's elite funds affiliated to Fund Calibre? No, not at all. I mean, Fund Calibre is just a information portal. As I say, it doesn't sell anything. It, um, so that, that, that there can be no affiliation type of risk. What I would just observe is that other Best Buy lists, uh, where there is transactional capabilities, they generally are trying to help. As I say, they won't always get it right. Most platforms earn their money off of how a, an investor's portfolio performs. So they are totally aligned with those type of clients um, to, put, to, to have a shop window for best funds. And then the client does well and then the platform does well. So, you know, yes, there is an affiliation via, via the fee-based um, way of collecting a, a remuneration for the platform. But it is with the best interest in teaching customers fairly at heart. Okay, thank you, Darius. And you can see Emma's full roundup of which funds are most recommended by some of the main brokers in this week's Investors Chronicle and the website. That brings us to the end of this week's show. We can read more on how to review your portfolio to get better investment returns and the most recommended funds in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle and the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend.